Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Thank you again to our Patreon subscribers. We really, really appreciate your support. For less than the cost of a box of cereal, and man, that stuff is expensive now at the store, you can hear us talk about more interesting engineering failures. You might even be able to get two months for the cost of one box of cereal. They are very expensive. So if you're new to our show or not familiar what our Patreon is, these are uh, smaller, shorter episodes for simpler or really old failures that don't have a ton of information. And we release these episodes on opposite Sundays from our regular episodes. So instead of hearing from us every other week, you can hear from us every week. And that costs five Canadian dollars a month, which depending on where your dollars come from might not be very many dollars. Just like somebody that reviewed our podcast recently said, they enjoyed our Canadian accents. So you can hear our Canadian accents, whatever those are, on a weekly basis now. I know I have a Canadian accent, but I don't hear it in my head. I think I sound like everyone on TV, and I know that I don't. Maybe I just walk around hoping no one else will notice. If you like our Canadian accents, you can hear them every week now. If you subscribe to the Patreon. Yes, yes. And you can support our show. This show is not easy to make. That money that we make from our Patreon goes to pay for hosting fees and web domain fees and new equipment because Brian's dog chewed his microphone cord and he had to buy a new one. So it goes to cover things like that. We are in no way looking to get rich off this podcast. We are just looking to cover some of the costs. So please support our show. We'd love to see you over there. On to this week's engineering news, and this engineering news for this week is relevant to this episode. NASCAR, the stock car racing series in America, they have decided they are going to go to the moon. They are not hosting a race on the moon. I was very excited when I first heard this. I thought there might be a race on the moon. There is not going to be a race on the moon. But NASCAR has partnered with Leos, which is a Fortune 500 science and technology company for the design and technology in Lidos's Lunar Terrain Vehicle, or LTV, that would be used to transport astronauts on the moon and around the moon. So the LTV will transport two astronauts across the lunar surface, starting with the Artemis V mission, which is going to occur in the late 2020s, so five-ish years from now, I'm going to say, from when we recorded this podcast. In the last couple weeks when we recorded this, the Artemis 1 mission, which was an unmanned mission, was successfully completed. Am I to believe that Artemis 5 implies that there will be a 2, 3, and 4 between now and 2028? That is typically the way that numbers work. That is the order the numbers go in. So I'm going to say yes. Thank you. I know that there are definitely, um, you know, the Artemis 2 and the Artemis 3 mission, those have very defined mission criteria. Um, I haven't looked far enough ahead into the, you know, Artemis 4 and Artemis 5 and Artemis 6, kind of into that progression of things. I I assume that, you know, kind of based off the data that comes back from Artemis 1 and um, what happens with Artemis 2 and Artemis 3, some of these missions may be altered. Obviously, the goal for Artemis missions is to have human beings on the moon again. One of the important things, one of the very important things that happened during the Apollo program was astronauts were able to collect lunar samples. The initial missions for Apollo, I don't believe, had the capability, or at least they had limited capability um, in the vehicle side of things. But then as the missions went along, you know, certainly, you know, once we got up to Apollo 18, the astronauts with their lunar rovers could go quite a ways from 
the from the lunar landing site. So this vehicle that, that NASCAR and Lidos are partnering on, this again just gives astronauts the capability to move away from their lunar landing site. They can sample more things. They can get there faster. I mean, it, it's just the same as having a vehicle in the city. Walking to places is great, but if you got to go somewhere like 10 kilometers away, it's going to take you a long time to walk there. Vehicle's a little bit better, especially if you got to carry stuff. So I think this is a really neat partnership with Lidos and NASCAR. One of the other things that Lidos looked to NASCAR for was in their ability. Basically, NASCAR has fast and agile maintenance. Obviously, with pit stops, you can't have those, you know, be taking a really long time. So in the in the lunar environment on the moon, having components that you can replace easily that are quick to change, those are pretty good things to have because it's one thing to get your vehicle there. If it needs a tire change, you know, 100 meters away from, from where you landed on the moon, that was just a huge waste of a vehicle. So having this ability to, you know, swap things and have fast and agile maintenance on the moon seems like a really good partnership. If you want to read more about NASCAR's adventure to the moon, check out the link on the webpage for this episode at failureology.ca. The new season of the 32-team professional hockey league that plays in Canada and the United States has started, which means the Toronto professional hockey team might win the end-of-season mug. When hell finally freezes over and the Toronto professional hockey team wins the big game, there's definitely going to be a parade. Toronto Professional Hockey Team Parade Planning Services is your one-stop sports mug championship parade planning service. Don't be like Vancouver. They rioted because their professional hockey team has never won a championship. Call Toronto Professional Hockey Team Parade Planning Services toll-free at 1-866-865-1967. Now on to this week's engineering failure, the first of a two-part series on motorsport safety. NASCAR was the inspiration for this episode, but we're going to discuss other forms of racing as well. And our aim for this episode is to kind of cover how safety has evolved and changed over the last several decades of of auto racing and what that has meant for driver safety. Just as a quick disclaimer, we've selected some safety features in in NASCAR and F1. Um, Those are kind of the two big racing series within North America and within the world. So NASCAR is very much focused on kind of the North American market, specifically the USA market. So that's the the stock car racing where everyone thinks they just turn left. That's not the case. There are in, in this season and last season, there are, are six courses, the road courses where they actually do turn right. They're ambi-turners. They're, they're ambi-turners. So for part of the races, there's 36 races in the NASCAR schedule, 36 points paying races. Six of those are on road courses, um, so Watkins Glen or Circuit of the Americas or Sonoma, where they do turn left and right. But most of the racing in NASCAR is on ovals, where they turn left. In F1, F1 obviously has street courses and road courses and other circuits, so that's more of an international one. If you've seen Drive to Survive over the last couple of years, you've seen a lot of kind of the F1 components and the series and, you know, the... Um, the cultural part of F1. So we've picked some safety features, as I mentioned. It's not it's not a complete list of all the safety features that have happened in F1 or NASCAR. These are ones that we felt were really interesting and certainly helped the progression of safety. And to be fair, we don't say this on every episode, but we kind of do this on every episode. We don't necessarily strive to cover every single thing. We try to do an overview of what the design was supposed to be, what went wrong and what happened afterwards. And we 
usually gravitate towards the parts of the story that we find the most interesting and those are what we share with you. But there are probably things we have missed in every episode, either because we simply missed them or because we didn't find that interesting. Uh, So this one is no different. So before we get really into the safety features in NASCAR and F1, we just thought it was prudent to talk about a couple notable incidents, at least incidents that I think were fairly notable in making NASCAR and F1 kind of look internally into maybe that they needed to rethink some parts and some design features of their car or how they were doing things in a procedure procedure side of things. Racing cars, no matter what, is always going to have a danger component to it. It's going to be unsafe at some level. You're going fast. There's many other cars around there. You're competing against the environment. There's going to be danger. And everyone that races at any level, I think, recognizes that there's some danger. However, nobody and no race organizer ever wants to see people injured in their races or be killed in their races. It's not good for your series. It's not good for other competitors. It's not fun to tell people's families that. Overall, everyone is trying to just have a really competitive, um, somewhat dangerous product that is also safe. So one of the first ones that I want to talk about, uh, so Richard Petty, who's a very famous NASCAR driver, in the 1970 Rebel 400, so it was a 400-mile race at Darlington, his car wound up rolling and flipping down the track. His mother was watching this on TV. His arms and shoulders were dangling out of the car on the wreck. She was not a big fan of this, as I don't think anyone's mom would be a fan of if they're, if there's if their child's appendages are hanging out of the car. She created what was the world's first, or at least first window net that was used in a competitive racing series. I believe she made it out of tea towels. And that's just the kind of the crosshatched netting, the strapping that's on the, on the windows of the NASCAR cars or other stock racing cars. So the, the driver's side window, there's no door on NASCAR cars. So they climb in through the windows. The, the window is open and there's just basically seatbelt nylon strapping across it now. And that contains appendages, other pieces in the car, keeps everything kind of intact if, if things are rolling over. I'm actually surprised it took this long to have window nets in a car. Thank you to Richard Petty's mom. Now they have window nets in NASCAR cars. So one of the most important safety features that's come out of um, an incident that we'll talk about later in this podcast is the hands device or the head and neck restraint device. So if you're driving your car at speeds around 200 miles an hour, and you collide with another car, or you collide with a wall, or your car starts flipping, there's a lot of forces that are happening within that car. A whiplash is obviously a big one. So the head and neck restraint system, what it does is when G-forces are experienced, or there's a a rapid deceleration event, it restrains um, through your helmet and through the restraint device that's worn on the shoulders, it restrains the movement of your head going forward. If you think in a normal passenger car accident, you collide with another car at say 70 kilometers an hour 100 kilometers an hour there's a lot of whiplash related injuries that happen as a result of those those incidents the head and neck restraint device in in racing cars does prevent that and that's i believe it's been implemented in basically every major racing series i like to think it's probably helped hundreds of people essentially walk away from incidents one of the other safety innovations, it was developed at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and this is known as a safer barrier, um, so S-A-F-E-R. So it's a steel and foam energy reduction barrier. A lot of the old NASCAR tracks are the ones that were built in, you know, from the 50s to the, you know, 2000s. They were just concrete walled, so basically you just think of it like a big cinder block oval. Hitting concrete or cinder block in your car, not a good idea. 
so the University of Nebraska-Lincoln developed these foam, steel and foam barriers that could be mounted onto the concrete racing surface that would absorb a lot of the energy for the car. So we'll talk about that again in a little bit more detail later on in this episode. All of these things together, so whether it was a head and neck restraint system, just overall car design and safety features, I mean, just like passenger cars, NASCAR cars have evolved with time, the safer barriers, all of these things and the window nets have helped reduce the injuries and the fatalities in NASCAR and other other racing series. And then other one other significant crash that we wanted to touch on was Kendall Hebert. Uh, She was a 17-year-old from Tecumseh, Ontario, which is near Windsor, Ontario, also near Detroit, Michigan, and she died from a jet car crash in the fall of 2006. And the reason this one sticks out for us, one, because of how much this impacted the racing industry in that part of North America, but also I knew Kendall. She went to the same high school that I did. She was a few years younger than me. I think she was in the same year as my brother. Uh, My brother was friends with her. I didn't know her super, super well, but I did know her. I had met her before. And I remember when this crash happened and I still, I still think about her from time to time because this was really, really tragic. She was only 17 years old and she was making a really big name for herself in the racing world at the time. She had just received the Guinness world record for the world's fastest female drag racer. And Police believe that her jet car got caught in a crosswind, which caused it to smash into a concrete barrier, then rolled over said barrier, and then rolled several more times. And her car was going 480 kilometers per hour at the time of the crash, which is very, very fast. I don't think I've ever gone that fast, maybe on a roller coaster, but I doubt it. And at the time of the accident, she was ejected from her car, and a lot of people believe that her seatbelt malfunctioned. It was only about six weeks at the time, and even though it goes under some pretty rigorous testing, there's been some theories that her seatbelt malfunctioned, and that was why she was ejected from the car. And had her seatbelt been working and had she'd stayed in the car, she could have survived the crash. And this is based on the fact that the car's frame held up pretty well in the crash itself. So... This was a really sad story for, for of course, Kendall's family, her friends, for the racing community, for the high school that I went to. And yeah, I just remember this being really tragic. And so um, I do think of Kendall from time to time. So going back in time to early motorsport safety, humans have been racing each other in various devices since the saber-toothed tiger era, at least since 700 BC in ancient Greece. Motorsports and automobile racing started soon after the invention of gasoline-powered internal combustion engines in the 1880s. The first organized automobile competition, a reliability test in 1894, went from Paris to Rouen, France, with the winner having an average speed of 16.4 kilometers per hour, which is slower than the speed of a top marathon runner. And the qualifying speed for that race was set at 10 miles per hour, which was too stringent for most of the vehicles that entered the race. And they had to actually reduce the qualifying speed to 8 miles per hour. So we've come a long way since then. So this event, it was promoted as a competition for horseless carriages. One of my favorite things, there's a a number of things I love about this, but it also included a 90-minute lunch break. So this is a race, more or less, and it includes a 90-minute stop for lunch. That seems to go against any sort of competitive um, 
event or you know competitive you know sports thing i mean i I realize cricket has tea breaks but if you're competing for the fastest time typically you don't take 90 minutes to go have lunch so the eventual first place finisher of this who was uh count jules de dion he arrived in rouen with a blistering average speed of 11.6 miles per hour and completed the journey in six hours and 48 minutes which included the time where he accidentally detoured into a potato field. It's interesting. I don't know. I mean, we talked last episode about interstate development in North America, and I know that Europe was definitely ahead of North America for its uh, road and highway construction, but I'm curious in 1894 what the roads were even like. I mean, They're probably limited, of course, by the vehicles themselves because internal combustion engines were kind of a new thing. But they're also likely limited by the quality of the roads, which in some cases were dirt or gravel and probably filled with potholes and not marked very well. I mean, this gentleman detoured himself into a potato field, which would be very interesting and a little bit funny. And he still won, which is surprising. So unfortunately, though, for him, he was disqualified. I guess disqualified from winning first prize. Um, so he was awarded the second prize as his steam-powered tractor required a passenger to serve as the onboard stoker. And one of the requirements was that the vehicle had to be operated by one person. Uh, so this race, they, it also saw the first fatality, I assume, of modern kind of internal combustion racing. Um, so there was a driver and a mechanic that passed away. I wasn't able to find a ton of information about it outside of the fact that there was a fatality in this race with a driver and a mechanic. I'm not 100% sure what happened. I believe boiler exploded on one of their cars. Either way, not a great start to automobile racing. So the evolution of motorsport safety through the 1920s and 1930s, so 40 years after this race happened, on vehicles we get roll cages, which are just a, a steel enclosure that goes around the, around the car to kind of protect the occupants if it rolls. And we also add fire extinguishers because stuff catches on fire, so it's probably important to be able to put the fire out in a timely manner. So we're going to dive into some of the specific safety features that have been implemented into motorsport racing over the years. And the first one we're going to talk about is course marshals. They have been used since 1950, and they were the course marshal is a person positioned around the track, typically road courses, and they alert drivers to issues by waving a yellow flag or a blue flag to indicate the faster cars are overtaking. And in some racing events, the course marshal may provide uh, first aid or firefighting, but at larger tracks, this is usually handled by professional safety crews. Moving on to helmets. So early helmets were made of leather and later helmets were made of hard materials such as metal or fiberglass. And I think it's really interesting. We see this in car development. You start off with a no safety feature. So you have kind of a like a leather helmet or a completely open car with no doors and no roof. And then you go into something really, really hard because you think, oh, a hard material will protect me, which you see in plastic helmets or metal helmets and cars from certain areas where they're kind of just large boats that everyone, they're like bumper cars driving down the road. But then over time, you realize that that hard material doesn't absorb any of the impact. And I think that's why today's cars, they, when they, when you get in an accident, your car, is written off so much easier and it just completely crumples. It's supposed to do that. You want those outside components to 
be sacrificial to absorb the impact of the accident so that the people inside don't have to absorb that with their body. I think helmets have kind of followed that same evolution over time where newer helmets are absorbed to take some of the impact so that your brain inside is not doing that for you. The first modern racing helmet was created in 1953 by Bell Auto Parts and was made of a composite material that was lighter and stronger than previous helmets. In the 60s and 70s, full-face helmets became popular in racing to provide better protection to the face and head. And I will argue that they are also better in the event of a fire because you're not going to burn your face, hopefully. In the 80s and 90s, improvements were made to the helmet design to improve aerodynamics and ventilation, which is also good. No one wants helmet hair. And in 2001, carbon fiber helmets were introduced and modern helmets are stringently tested to withstand racing and crash forces. And I'm sure official racing helmets follow a bit of a different standard, but you'll see traditional, you know, motorcycle helmets or ATV helmets, bike helmets. They all have kind of a dot symbol, the Department of Transportation, which is an American standard. They all must meet certain regulations depending on which type of helmet that it uses. So they've really streamlined that process over time. And I think that's to our benefit. Next up, we're going to talk about fire resistant suits. So drivers used to wear short sleeve shirts for keeping cool while racing in early days. And I don't blame them. It's probably very, very hot. Most auto racing happens in the summer. The car gives off a lot of heat. You don't move for a really long time. You're under a lot of stress. So you are probably sweating a lot not just from the heat, but also from the stress that your body is under. And so a short sleeve shirt sounds great to keep you cool. But when your car lights on fire, not so good. Also, if you get in an accident, there's nothing to protect your skin from anything that it may come up against in that accident. So uh, for example, people that ride motorcycles, you want to wear some type of suit or, or full body protection. So if you get in an accident, you don't get road rash. So overalls were introduced in 1963 by the FIA, which is a French organization standing for uh, Federation of International Automobiles. And in 1975, overalls had to meet a fire-resistant standard, which is also really good that they are tested. And fire-resistance, at least to my knowledge, I've never, you know, I I don't work in manufacturing and I don't know too much about these, but I have worn fire-resistant uh, clothing for certain sites that I have gone to, mostly up north. And my understanding is the material does matter, but it's a lot, has a, the fire resistance comes a lot from the coating that is applied to the fabric. And that's what pre- prevents it from catching on fire. Current race suits or fire suits must withstand being heated to six to 800 degrees Fahrenheit for more than 11 seconds for F1. And NASCAR fire suits need to be protected up to 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit of heat. And NASCAR Hall of Fame member Tony Flock was the first driver to wear a fire retardant jumpsuit. Thanks, Tony Flock. He probably saved a lot of lives and looked cool doing it. Yeah, I would say he was probably mocked at the time, but he was well ahead of his time. I would, I would agree with that. I mean, um, just on to F1 here briefly, um, talk about some of the safety features in F1. So F1 cars, so those are the, the open wheel cars. 
Um, they go quite a bit faster than the NASCAR cars do. They handle obviously much better. They race all around the world, um, you know, through North America, through Europe, through the Middle East and in Australia, South America. It's probably the better known racing series. So one of the features that F1 cars have, um, they have a survival cell. So that's the, the little area where the driver sits. So this, this area, it's built out of six millimeter, exceedingly strong carbon fiber composite with a layer of Kevlar. And that is penetration resistant. The crash protection surfaces absorb huge amounts of energy during a crash. F1 tires on the F1 cars, they also have wheel tethers to them. So the wheels don't, you know, escape from the car. I'll talk about this a, a little bit later, but um, having a wheel that separates from your car and then having that wheel hit at a very high speed has significant potential to seriously injure somebody or kill somebody if it goes into the stands the wheels i'm gonna guess they're around 100 pounds everyone knows what a tire is like they bounce around they roll around if they get hit by a car going at i'm gonna say 200 miles an hour plus or minus 25 miles an hour it's going to go a really long way at a really high rate of speed and if that arrives into the stands it has huge potential to kill a lot of people back on the survival cells um, in f1 though Within the survival cell, there's a fire suppression system that can be activated by the driver or externally that sprays fire retardant foam around the monocoque and the engine. All of these safety features that we'll talk about, um, and Nicole mentioned it briefly, these are all here to protect the drivers. So if parts of the car disintegrate and fly off the car, that's energy being absorbed by the car in the crash that's not being absorbed by the driver. If you design a vehicle or a car where everything except the area around the driver disintegrates to minimize all the, the energy that's transferred to the driver. That's a great design. Back in the 1970s and 1960s, kind of the boat style cars, you know, the, the big Buick cars and the Oldsmobiles, you could get in an accident, the car would look perfectly fine, you know, very, maybe a very minor dent on the, on the bumper. And the people inside would have severe injuries or fatalities because all of that energy was transferred directly to the human occupants. Cars, are replaceable humans not so much so window nets we've already kind of touched on they're used in nascar and other racing series which came as a result of richard petty's 1970 crash during the rebel 400 and his mother not wanting to see his arms and shoulders dangling out of the car which to be honest i have no relation to richard petty i don't want to see that either so i'm glad that they made this netting to keep all appendages inside the vehicle at all times the early day window nets were made of a checkerboard netting out of dish towels. The modern ones look kind of like a seatbelt like material. That's what they look like. I mean, on TV, I've never seen one in, up close, but that's what I picture when I think about it. And there's a number of clips inside the car that they're hooked onto. So the, the netting comes down, the driver climbs inside, then the netting is reattached and when the driver needs to leave the car. So one of the other neat things, or at least I think it's neat about the window netting um, and the safety netting. So when drivers are involved in an incident um, that kind of brings out a yellow flag or a caution flag or something happens to their car, the the safety teams that respond to so the ambulance and the, and the fire guys and um, the doctors that kind of go to the cars, one of the things that they'll always look for, and I look for this all the time too, um, just when I'm watching on TV or if I go to the track to watch stuff, is the window net coming down. Some of these wrecks, um, especially if parts are flying off the car, they look incredibly bad you hope that nobody's ever injured when the window net is brought down by the driver that signifies to kind of the response teams that 
you know, the driver's moving around, the driver's okay, you know, they're cognizant of the fact that they've been involved in a wreck, they put the window netting down. I have watched incidents where it takes a really long time for the window net to come down. It's one of the scariest things to watch because in my head, I know that somebody in that car, they're either unconscious or something's going on. They, you know, they're, they've possibly broken, you know, arms or broken something where they can't reach for that window net. And then especially too, if, you know, if the car's on fire, there's, there's fluids that are leaking, the engine's very hot. And if this person isn't mobile enough or, or aware of their situation um, or their surroundings well enough to put that window net down, that's always a really scary thing to me. And I'm, I'm sure it's incredibly you know, scary for the safety teams that are responding to these incidents. A lot of the tracks that, you know, NASCAR races on, you know, the, the safety teams may have to come, you know, a mile or, you know, over a mile to attend to a wreck. You know, so these guys, they, they sit in their trucks, they're ready to go, but it still takes a while to drive that mile to the wreck, um, to get up to speed, you know, in the, in the truck. I mean, same thing on, you know, some of the road courses that F1 races on, you can't have safety, you know, vehicles positioned every, you know, hundred meters. So there is that time that it takes, um, safety vehicles to get to the incident. So having the window net go down to me, it's always a, it's a huge relief when I see that window net go down. So on to some other car, um, related features, this is, uh, certainly something that developed in NASCAR. I don't know if it happens in F1. So with NASCAR being a stock car racing series, even though a lot of the parts on a car aren't stock, but they look like passenger vehicles. And when you're racing at high speeds, obviously everyone's seen, you know, big crashes from Daytona or Talladega. Cars getting airborne is never a good thing. Cars should always stay on the ground and in contact with the ground. That's kind of how they're designed. They have four tires for a reason. They're not an airplane. So one of the things that modern stock cars have is they have roof flaps or spoilers on the car. So the roof flaps are designed to keep cars from becoming airborne and flipping down the track. The risk of injury is reduced substantially if the car stays on the track versus being launched through the air. So these roof flaps are typically positioned about 140 degrees off kind of the driving direction of the car. So as the car rotates, so if it's, you know, somebody makes contact with the rear of the car and it starts to spin the car. So with air pressure changes in the car, as the car spins, the, these flaps on the roof will lift up and they just act as a giant speed brake. I mean, the same way that on an airplane wing, the spoilers come out of the wing. It just helps keep the car on the ground. It helps prevent the car from going airborne at high rates of speed. If you just think about the shape of car, it's barely close to a wing shape at a high rate of speed. If you get enough air underneath the car, the car starts to lift up the car becomes airborne and then it just starts to tumble through the air or bounces off the track so if you can keep the car on the ground good things happen so we're going to pause here as you can tell we have a lot to talk about with motorsport safety and we've kind of just scratched the surface we're going to carry on with the second part of our motorsport safety in our next episode so there you have it part one of our series on motorsport safety Over the years, we've raced some cars, we've learned a lot, there's probably still a lot more to learn on the safety side of things. We'll continue to adapt and improve the safety of motorsports, and you can hear all about that on part two. For photos, sources, and an episode summary from this week's episode, head to failureology.ca. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to Failureology so more people can find us. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failureology. You can email us at thefailurologypodcast at gmail.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, or you can message us on our Patreon page. Check out the show notes for links to all of these. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and tune into the next episode for part two of Motorsport Safety.
Bye, everyone. Talk soon.